Thank you, Snow, for sponsoring this episode of The Coffee Podcast. I drink a few cups of coffee in the morning and another at night on special occasions. I've learned coffee is great for my health, so I'm left with the challenge we all face as coffee enthusiasts who love to smile. That's where Snow comes in. Their solution is backed by $1.4 million of research and development, caters to those of us with sensitive teeth, and shows results just after three days. Get 15% off your first order at trysnow.com for a limited time with the code coffee pot Listening to the Coffee Podcast. This is the Coffee Science Series Coffee and My Senses. Over or under extracted. Do I like my coffee bold or not? Why do I like this coffee and not that one? These kinds of questions fall into the realm of sensory science, and that is the topic in this episode. This is another one in one. First, a discussion about descriptive sensory analysis, then a discussion about consumer preferences and how we rethink, or might rethink, the coffee brewing control chart. Mackenzie Batali got her degree in chemistry at Lewis and Clark College in Portland. Her thesis research was focused on the synthesis of natural products, which means she was working in an organic chemistry lab building molecules. She had her start in wine, looking at the natural products found in red wine, and was synthesizing products like resveratrol. Then she moved to Kalama, Washington, and worked in the same sort of field, except this time with flavor and fragrance. This was around the idea of making pure fragrance molecules. Just curious, as my curious mind, would that touch anything like the fizzy flavored fizzy water that we've been seeing so much of? Or is that that's purely flavor? I don't know exactly who all we sold to. That wasn't actually something that the R&D team was privy to uh, mm-hmm. at my job. Yeah. But yeah, we sold. I know um, some of our big, big buyers were things like Coca-Cola. And so beverages cool. would definitely be under that. And so organic chemistry, what is the main difference between, or this is my ignorance showing through, what is the difference between organic chemistry and just chemistry? <laughs> just chemistry? Organic chemistry is a subfield of chemistry and it focuses on carbon-based chemistry. So living things are carbon-based. Organic chemistry isn't only studying living things, but generally like natural products are carbon-based other than like some minerals and salts. So Perfect. things okay. that are plant and animal derived. Gotcha. So in our case, coffee is organic yeah. chemistry. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Or organic chemistry is required to do chemistry and coffee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Here we go. We're on a roll here. So Great. we're going to be talking a lot about sensory science, obviously. My first question for you on that topic is what is sensory methodology and flavor chemistry and how is this different from what Andrew does? In academic sensory science, basically, we're looking at uh, methodologies to compare the flavor, taste, and overall sensory experience of a food or consumer product. Um, there's a lot of different ways to evaluate this, but there's generally two main camps, which there's Andrew who does consumer preference. So looking at different products and what drives liking, what makes people enjoy the product. Whereas Mm -hmm. I do descriptive sensory analysis, which is where I compare different products and just objective measures of taste, flavor, mouthfeel, aroma, and just looking at what is there or is not there. So my panelists, my panelists don't tell me what they like or they don't like, or well, sometimes they do, but I don't care. Uh, <laughs> they taste what they taste. Uh, <laughs> right on, uh, yeah. yeah, so they're filling out a ballot of just this is sweet. This is a certain intensity of sweetness. It's bitter, certain intensity. And then we connect this back to when we can, we connect it back to the chemical makeup of the product. So 
We'll come back to the panelist. I feel like it's a really important part of our discussion today to understand what it is uh, that you're doing. But there are also some terms we're going to hit on, I imagine, uh, as we go on. And so I'm going to say some terms. I'm going to say, hey, how should we think about this in the context of the conversation? And maybe our listeners are taking some notes. That might be a good idea. And um, if I butcher the name, just feel free to just correct how I say it. You know, just okay. just feel free. Don't I will not be offended. So okay. let's start with some sugary words. I so okay. I, I know that much. So mono monosaccharides. You talk a lot about this in your previous talks that I've that I've watched, I've listened to, that I've read. What are the basic mechanics of such sugars, and what should we understand about these? So monosaccharides are building blocks for everything that is sort of carbohydrate derived. So monosaccharides are carbohydrates. Those are sort of interchangeable. Monosaccharides are small molecules. Fructose and glucose are monosaccharides. Um, So people are probably familiar with those. They're sweet molecules. Those bind together to make a disaccharide, which is uh, sucrose, table sugar. So there's a lot of disaccharides, um, but sucrose tends to be people's favorite. And then they can build larger chains and networks. And those make up polysaccharides, which can be starch is a polysaccharide okay. um, or okay. uh, cellulose. So we've got our carbohydrates or starches that are digestible and our insoluble fiber uh, in foods that is also, those are also non-digestible polysaccharides. And it just depends on how they bind together, how tightly they're bound together, basically, simple okay. way of looking at it, uh, whether they're... Uh-huh. They'll break down like starch does or um, Got you. just not be digestible. So how much they love each other, basically? Like, can you yeah. can you separate the two? All right. Yeah. That's helpful. Yeah. I have to use analogies like this. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So it, it sounds kind of simple. Monosaccharides means kind of like one. And yeah. then disaccharide sounds like two or yeah, yeah. Yeah. Two. And then poly is just like many. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we're on a roll here. Okay, yeah. so we covered some sugar. Um, we'll come back to those because they'll be important for, for uh, you know, as we talk more about what you're, you observed in your research. You also mentioned something called relative ratio. I know on the podcast, uh, any of our listeners who have been around for a while, they understand the idea of a ratio because we talk about it when we're brewing coffee. But what is a relative ratio um, in the context of your experiments, at least? I do a lot of research on the coffee brewing control chart, so comparing coffees at different levels of total dissolved solids and percent extraction. And relative ratio is just a term I use when talking about the changing ratios of different flavors at different brew levels. It's pretty easy to think about how this would happen when you look at coffees at two different percent extractions. It would change under extracted coffee is generally really acidic and sour. And if you measure like the pH of an under-extracted coffee versus an over-extracted coffee, mm-hmm. uh, it's going to be the same. It's going to be equally acidic chemically, but the relative ratio of other flavors is changing, which changes the flavor profile. Okay. Um, so you're okay. like, you compare like two coffees under and over-extracted chemically, they'll be just as acidic, but the relative ratio of other aromas, bitterance, other molecules is increasing or is is changing. Looking at a piece of the pie versus the whole pie, like if pH is the general measurement that you're looking at, you don't get to see the more uh, granular things happening underneath unless you're measuring them. And so that's where this relative ratio comes into play. Okay. All right. Yeah, we're getting there. Okay. And fractionation. This yes. is key to your experiments. I, know, I think it's even in the title of many of your talks. Yeah, g- give us a little idea. It, it's an intimidating word, but maybe it's not so intimidating as it should, or, or maybe it shouldn't be. Yeah, so my first experiment, um, and this isn't necessarily the bulk of my research. This was just my first published paper, so I've talked about it a lot. Um, yeah, yeah. So this experiment, basically we wanted to look at how flavor evolves over time during a coffee brew by breaking the brew up into pieces. So what I did is I had a large automatic batch brewer. We had Curtis donate brewers for us. Want to give them a shout out because I love them. Um, And so we have their large batch brewers. Every 30 seconds during the brew, I would switch the carafe. So 
start the brew, start the timer as soon as water dripped through, and collect coffee for 30 seconds, and then switch to a new carafe and close up the previous one. And so those were my fractions. So I was breaking the process of a brew down into pieces. So I did a lot in my undergraduate chemistry lab. Uh, It's a way of purifying chemicals. So this is a term, I think people use it in distillation too. Sometimes they'll use the term like the first cut, the first fraction um, when you're distilling, like that's the methanol, the toxic stuff that you want to throw away. So it's kind of like distilling, but okay. If any of our listeners were at home and they were doing an experiment where they were, if they kind of like replicated something you were doing, but at home without all the cool fancy tools, they could say it was fractionation. Yeah. 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 There you go. Yeah. You can so, very easily do this at home. Super easy with a pour over brewer, like a V60 or something. Just yeah. move it from one cup to the next. And then uh, my final term, so we can get out of the the world of vocabulary here, is co-extraction which maybe is a little bit related to the ratio um, term that we had earlier. I mean, this isn't a super scientific word. It just means um, like different molecules that follow the same pattern, which likely means that they're chemically similar, like a similar size or a similar um, structure, um, because a lot of it relates to the solubility. Different molecules will more readily go into water than mm-hmm. others. Well, I guess to, to think of things that extract together are more alike. Is that the idea? That's not a hard and fast rule. It's not like everything <laughs> that extracts at the same time is like exactly the right. same. But All right. I, f- I feel like we've sunk our teeth into some terms here. Now let's, let's jump into more of the conversation of quantitative descriptive analysis, which sounds to be your specialty in the sensory science. Is that right? I will say uh, quantitative descriptive analysis, that name is trademarked. Um, so oh. what I do uh, is heavily inspired by it and as well as uh, some methodology uh, by sensory spectrum. But uh, I, can't, I, I can't say that I officially do quantitative descriptive analysis. Um, <laughs> wow, I, never, I, I didn't even know you could do that. I guess. I'm, yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, certain sensory companies trademark their methodology, so like Whoa. you can only. I don't remember who has QDA trademarked, but Sensory Spectrum has their Spectrum method mm-hmm. um, that is trademarked. Okay, yeah. so you can trademark a methodology. See, I'm learning all kinds of stuff. Here. Yeah. <laughs> wow, this is great. Well, let's jump into the questions here. This is probably the biggest question people are going to have, or one of them. If taste is subjective, how does a scientist? like you, run experiments with reliable results. Totally subjective. Like the basic taste, what you experience on your tongue, is just bitter, sour, sweet, salty, and umami. Those, everyone will experience those pretty much the same way. The only difference is some people are more sensitive to tastes than other people. This is like the concept Hmm. of a super taster or... Okay, yeah. uh, That's why we use a lot of panelists. So I usually have 12 people. I'm not looking for like a like hard score that this coffee is an 8 out of 10 in bitterness or something. We're just looking at trends and uh, I'll use statistical methods to recognize the trends and like we're just looking at is this coffee more intense in this thing than the other coffee. And it's okay if one panelist rates coffee A as a 3 out of 10 in bitterness and one panelist rates coffee A as a 7 out of 10 but then they rate co- they both rate coffee B as higher than coffee A. Okay. It all come kind of averages out. And then if there's anything where they're not consistent, I just don't report. I don't like make any conclusions based off of that. I won't make claims one way or another if the panelists don't seem to be consistent. If I do a study and I don't see differences in a certain attribute or I don't report differences of that just uh, it doesn't mean it's not there it just means that my instrument my panel my analytical tool did not pick up on those differences I see you said um and, and I'm it's a direct quote here uh quote descriptive sensory analysis in food science does require pretty extensive training that's yes. the end of the quote what does that training look like So this also ties back into your previous question uh, so I said taste is not really subjective Flavor can be things that are aroma-based, everything on the flavor wheel. That is kind of subjective because let's take like a strawberry, for example. You know, people will say they taste strawberry notes or something or berry notes in coffee. But a strawberry is made up of 
so many different aromas. What we recognize can be cultural. So people will define things based on what they're familiar with when they're naming aroma, flavor notes, and coffee. So what we do to align this is we get all the panelists together, usually have like four weeks of training, like two or three times a week before Mm -hmm. I start an evaluation and they'll taste the coffees. Part of my methodology is that I don't present them with a list of things I want them to evaluate. I let them taste the coffees. They write down what they taste. I just give them the flavor wheel to sort of inspire them. And then they discuss and agree on things. We decide which flavors are most important to evaluate because I'm not going to put, you know, cinnamon on my ballot if the coffee Mm -hmm. we're evaluating doesn't have that flavor note in there. There's no point in training them on that. So they taste the product set. They don't know the treatment of the product set, but they taste it. They evaluate it. They discuss. Then I bring in reference standards. So I will bring in, you know, they taste citrus in the coffee. I'll give them like sliced lemon or grapefruit or like a blend for vegetative. I'll do, you know, chopped cucumber and they'll smell this and then they'll taste the coffee. And we discuss until they agree that when I taste this, when I perceive this flavor in the coffee, when I say I'm perceiving nutty, this is what this almond butter is what it aligns to in my head. They all agree on that. So when I publish my results, I always have a list of like of exactly what I used as a standard. Yeah, that that makes sense. Okay, people know what the language refers to. Got you. So you remove maybe bias by creating a common association, a standard is a better word for that, I'm sure. Yeah. And then you go off of that for your results. And yes. then the emphasis is on if the room agrees or majority agrees, then there's some kind of trend that you can you can count on from a yeah. data perspective. What kinds of biases, we already talked about some of them, but are there any that we didn't mention? So what kinds of other biases are you aiming to remove during this process? You mentioned some cultural ones. What might be some other ones? trying to align people as an instrument that can sort of work together. Um, Mm -hmm. And then an evaluation. So they're blinded to everything. That's really important to our methodologies that they don't know anything about the coffee, which I think is usually a big difference in our methodology versus industry cupping methodology. People generally know what they're tasting. So not knowing anything about the coffee it allows them to remove any expectations they might have. They don't know the roast level. I mean, some who are well familiar with coffee can usually guess, but they don't know the roast level, the origin, how it was brewed, anything other than that it's some sort of drip or filter coffee. Um, yeah, okay. And no, it's yeah. not espresso, basically. <laughs> but yeah. that's about it. It's a <laughs> generic hot coffee. I hear this in the uh, industry, mainly from baristas who say they they walk into the coffee shop and they're dialing in espresso or, you know, they're getting espresso ready for the morning shift. And you'll hear this thing among baristas saying something like, I have uh, uh, basically tasting fatigue or I have uh, espresso fatigue from tasting, right? I can't taste anything. Everything tastes the same now because I've sipped too many of these. Is that a thing that you experience during training? Oh, absolutely. Um, during training, they'll only taste four cups usually. Um, that's like during one hour training session. They'll only taste four cups of coffee. They go water and we use saltine crackers to rinse out their palate. Carbonated water works well for that too. When we're in training and we're discussing everything and working with references, they usually only taste four coffees in an hour. Okay, Um, yeah, that's reasonable. Yeah, during an evaluation (laughs) session where there's no discussion, they can go a little faster. And I've done six to nine coffees, but they're not drinking very much. So what properties of a brew do you focus on primarily? in your research. I guess as a backdrop, I know when a company is cupping a coffee, they have a lot more that they know about the coffee, but they're looking at things like body, et cetera, this and that. What properties are you looking at and what are you measuring and what kinds of trends are you looking for? Usually we always are going to look at big three of the basic tastes, which is bitter, sour, and sweet. 
sometimes okay, yeah. in some experiments uh, I've included salty and umami because really strong coffees can sometimes have that sort of salty or savory note to it. Uh, so those are always ones that I focus on a lot because uh, they're pretty ubiquitous to any coffee type. Astringency is another one because uh, that can be a negative attribute. Everything I'm looking at is is different, is comparing different kinds of brewing, basically. So uh how to brew coffee to avoid those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And then I try to look at um, whatever attribute is relevant to the coffee I'm using, but I try to look at things that are then going to be universal to other coffees. So my ballots usually consist of terms that are in the middle, like layer of the flavor wheel. Like I don't get super specific with like mm -hmm. what type of fruit. So I'll look at usually like citrus and berry common terms, some sort of chocolate or cocoa, nutty, as well as some things likely would be considered more negative traits, like rubbery, vinegar, burnt, mm -hmm. things like that. Okay. Um, yeah. So we're looking at both like positive and negative traits in coffee. I'm looking as much at how to brew as I am looking at how not to brew. The idea of there's, there's the better way to brew. Um, and then there's like the worst way to brew and getting as far away from that. Yeah, that's that's the thing I always warn my panelists about. Like, they think that because like I'm, doing, you know, a fancy coffee scientist, like they're gonna sign up and they're gonna get to taste a bunch of really good stuff. Uh, and that's a misconception of pretty much anyone who has never been on an academic sensory panel. Like, no, you're <laughs> gonna you're gonna taste the poorly done stuff as well. That's fun. Yeah, yeah, I was on a walnut study recently and had to taste a lot of rancid walnuts. Oh no! Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's part of knowing how to knowing how when something is good, you have to kind of know when it's bad. Yeah, it's, I feel like that's a thing you got to know in the kitchen if you're a chef. It's like yeah. pretty, pretty basic. Well, we're gonna work our way now, I guess, into the conversation of sugars in coffee, the naturally occurring ones. It seemed that a lot of what I read, um, based on you know what you put out there a lot of what you found relates to sugar, uh, the naturally occurring sugar in coffee. The naturally occurring sugar, I'm trying to understand the chemistry side. There's other compounds in coffee, mm -hmm. right? Like sugar is just like one piece of this. Oh, yeah. If I was to draw a coffee cup on a whiteboard and divide it into all the different kinds of compounds that we would find in coffee, am I even saying that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> About about what percentage would represent sugars? Not very much. Uh, uh, the brewed ah. coffee. So green coffee, starting there, okay, has a great. lot of sugar. <laughs> uh, it's like 8% sucrose. But during roasting, if you've heard of the Maillard reaction and the browning mm -hmm. reaction, sugar mm -hmm. reacts with proteins and it forms like those roasted aromatics, sort of caramelized flavors, as well as the large molecules that are responsible for the brown pigment of the coffee. Mm -hmm. So then you're okay. losing a lot of sugar, especially a lot of the small sugars, the monosaccharides and the disaccharides, the ones oh, that shoot. taste sweet are actually, okay. you're actually losing that during roasting, um, trading that in for a lot of the nice coffee flavors that we have. But then roasted coffee, when we were taking into account like the polysaccharides, large ones, I think it's, I don't remember exactly off the top of my head, but I think it's at least like 30 to 40%. But most of that is the insoluble fibers that okay. don't break down. Okay. So those don't end up in my cup. Like I don't taste those in my coffee because they're not no, broken down. No, that's Ooh. like when you have your spent grounds, that's a lot of what's left is those insoluble fibers. Oh, sad and then, day. Okay. Of the actual brewed coffee, from what I measured, it's like a fraction of a percent. Wow. Sugars. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of surprising because some coffees you taste are perceivably pretty sweet. Yeah. Um, and I only measured one type of coffee, but it might be higher in some other varietals, but not a lot of sugar survives the roasting process. And I wonder if my listeners understand how much it costs, um, as I put it in our question here, how much does it cost to measure a spoonful of sugar? And I'm obviously making terrible jokes here, but uh, you've alluded to the fact it's not cheap to measure the sugar in coffee. Can you explain that to us? Well, it's not cheap to get an exact breakdown of the specific monosaccharides that are in coffee. Okay. 
you can measure sugar and things relatively inexpensively. People do it in brewing with the um, the hydrometers. Um, okay. So you wanted to know if you know you're adding table sugar and you wanted to know how much is in there. You know, that's yeah. I think they're the hydrometers are not that expensive. But in order to look at the specific structure of all of the different mono and polysaccharides that are in a cup of coffee, or really like any specific chemicals that are in a cup of coffee, those are much more complicated machines. So in order to identify the exact concentrations of each individual type of monosaccharide that was in the coffee, we we're using a what's called a mass spectrometer which uh, separates molecules in a sample and measures the concentration of individual molecules. And that's a machine that costs $600,000. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we have to pay a couple thousand dollars a sample to run those measurements in the chemistry department here. Uh, Professor Carlito Labria, who runs the mass spectrometry facility, has a bunch of these different machines because they measure different things better um so different machines are needed for different chemicals uh oh, wow. and he jokes that it's uh around the same price as a nice neighborhood in davis each one of those machines costs as much as a home in oh man davis that's that's pretty wild but yeah it's it's able to give you a more specific look into what's actually going on deeper what we saw looking into specific composition was that the concentrations of the sweet active molecules, the fructose, the glucose, and the sucrose, was well, well below the established human sensory detection threshold. There's a lot of arabinose, galactose, and mannose in coffee, which are other monosaccharides. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. But those aren't nearly as perceptibly sweet. Okay. So the ones that actually really contribute to sweetness are at very low concentrations. And like I said, I only measured one coffee type, but based on these results, I highly doubt actual sugars are responsible for perceptible sweetness in most black coffees. That's kind of a big deal, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so like, this is my hypothesis. I'm not like, I yeah. don't have enough data to like say this for sure because I haven't yeah. measured every, every single type of coffee. Based on my knowledge of coffee composition, that's my hypothesis. See, if this was a movie about coffee or something. I would have played really cool sciencey music right there when you said that because it felt like <laughs> just like a mic drop, like yeah. a science mic drop. Uh, who knows? Maybe I'll do something goofy like that. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, the, the idea that the perception of my coffee being sweet isn't actually coming from sugars in the coffee. I mean, it makes my brain hurt because I'm already not super familiar with the chemistry. Like you have that understanding. And so I'm assuming this must have something to do with aroma. Yes. Okay. That's That's just a totally wild guess. I mean, it hasn't been specifically documented in coffee, but in various sensory literature, it has been shown that the perception of aromas that your brain associates with sweetness, things like vanilla or chocolate or fruity, those sorts of things, they'll trick your brain into perceiving more sweetness. So... You can, oh my. yeah, you can spike some, put a little bit of vanilla extract into something that doesn't actually have any sugar in it, and your brain oh. will start to think of that as a little bit sweet. So we could probably even experiment with this at home, like baking or whatever, like try yeah. something with vanilla, try something without vanilla, see what happens. Yeah. It's also maybe a good way to, to curb those su- sugars in your life. Be like, I want this to taste sweet, but I know there's a trick, and I'm going to yeah. just throw some, huh, this is some exactly. good stuff. I mean, to me, I think that's why people like the, you know, fruity flavored sparkling waters when they're trying to cut out soda. It tricks your brain when you're tasting the, you know, berry sparkling water, thinking you're tasting a little bit of sweetness. Okay. And there's no sugar in it. All right. Well, you know, I you mentioned spiking cups of coffee with vanilla or something. I heard you were doing this. Um, I don't know if it was in your experiments or not, but what was that all about? Uh, that was a training exercise. So... <laughs> We had our reference standards during training. Uh, This is always my favorite part of training because the panelists both love and hate it. Sometimes I would use the study coffee or sometimes I'll just, uh, depending on the study, I'll use a generic coffee. And some of the issues people have is recognizing 
specific flavors within the context of coffee. So they can, mm-hmm. they have the aroma standard and they smell it and they taste the coffee side by side and they're just not quite uh, able to put that together. So to refine the exercise, I will set out a bunch of coffees and with different spikes in them. So I'll do and basically anything that is edible to humans on our list. Uh, sometimes we have, you know, things on the ballot, mm-hmm. like chemical rubber, something like that. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't make them taste anything that's unsafe, <laughs> but I'll that's put, good. Uh, yeah, I'll put some vanilla extract or um, some like apple juice, just a little bit like lemon juice, things like that into the coffee. And then they taste it and they have to guess what I spiked in it. So it's training them to recognize these flavors in coffee. And I don't do it mm. very strong. I have done that in the past and <laughs> that's uh, <laughs> unpleasant for people. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so sometimes, sometimes it's good, uh, and sometimes, uh, you know, the vinegar or MSG spiked coffees. Uh, yeah, it's giving uh, me give me some bad memories actually of uh, what you just said. I remember when I was younger, and my brother like spiked my soda with salt when I went to the oh, bathroom. Yeah. So I'm able to really perceive salt now in in cups. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. based on your observations. Overall, I know that you've been doing a lot more research than even what we're able to talk about on the show right now. What is happening compositionally as time progresses in a brew of coffee? So you talked about those fractions. We didn't go too deep into it, but I'd like for our listeners to hear your observations based on that research. Basically what's happening, uh, you've got, so we're just talking about drip brew, but you could probably extrapolate this to other types of brew. You've got water hitting the grounds and got each each coffee ground is its own little sphere and as water hits the grounds first of all what you're what you're getting is everything that's on the surface that's really water soluble so that's why under extracted coffee is is really acidic um you're getting a lot of the acids that's small acids like acetic and citric acid quite soluble Hmm. they'll go readily into the brew and then you've got water soaking in to the grounds and staying in the coffee grounds, soaking into each little individual particle. That increased contact time, as well as the turbulence um, from water passing through the grounds, is what then starts to dissolve things that are a little bit less soluble. So based on the structure of different flavor molecules, um, some things are very polar, like water. Mm -hmm. Those will dissolve really quickly. Some are a little bit less polar, like oil, and will not quite so readily just release from the coffee grounds into the water. But with more time and turbulence, that will eventually transfer into the cup. So more contact time with the grounds, you're getting uh, more of those flavors that are maybe a little bit less soluble. There's okay. actually a really interesting paper on this looking at the, it's called the Kinetics of Coffee Aroma Extraction by Frederick Mista. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name right, but he co-authored a yeah. chapter okay. on chemistry and the craft and science of coffee as well um, and talks about this. Yeah, we'll have to link to that. Yeah. With respect to mass transfer, which is something I've heard uh, throughout conversations just as I've been developing this series, are there any standout compounds you might consider to be untapped potential in our roasted coffee? It's strange to me that these compounds exist, but they're not like really ending up in the brew. I don't think so much there's like untapped potential in there. There's stuff that we could be extracting that we're not. We still like still haven't identified everything. Um, I see new papers coming out all the time that are identifying new compounds in coffee that uh, either contribute to flavor or contribute to enhancing flavor in different ways. Just learning more about how all the different uh, flavors interact. Uh, One thing, maybe I'm untapped, uh, but it's something I've read about since looking at polysaccharides in coffee is some research has been done. I think it was in beer about how polysaccharides can like bind to aroma compounds and change uh, when they'll release. And uh, this is not something that's been studied in coffee at all. So uh, I would love to see someone looking at the relationship between um, polysaccharides as well as some of the Maillard reaction products and their potential to do that. I think in general, focusing on some of the late extracting 
aroma compounds in research and how that contributes to increasing sweetness in a cup of coffee? Because one of the things we saw in our fractionation sensory research was that the later fractions were sweeter. And yeah, I believe that this is due to those sweet associated aromas and really figuring out how to maximize those aromatics is how you're, you can really try to brew the sweetest possible cup of coffee. So it's pretty interesting because I would have guessed that the later fraction would be the most bitter yeah, and no. also the most watered down. Yeah, it was it was watered down, but it was definitely it was perceived as sweet and sort of floral huh. and tea like. Wow. Yeah, and that's that's something that uh, we're with our coffee brewing control chart research. Uh, we're definitely sort of turning around because uh, the classic coffee brewing control chart characterizes over extracted coffee, high percent extraction coffee as bitter, but really we see the bitterness more just increasing with the total dissolved solids. So, mind blown. It's just, ru- it's just ruining us. <laughs> I'm gonna have to go delete episodes of of content now. So, <laughs> um, well, I mean, coffee is still just not very well studied. Like, yeah, you know, science evolves and changes over time. So we're seeing, as we understand how extraction and flavor works in the coffee industry, we're seeing the scientific method in real time. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, it's it's an honor really to have you on the show and, and to learn from you. Um, I know you put a lot of hours and hard work into your research and it's easy for us to sit on the show and just talk about it, but you've really, you put in so many hours to this. So I thank you for sharing your expertise. What kind of experiment or experiments would you recommend for us at home uh, to learn more about the realities of your side of sensory science? I mean, like I said, it's really easy to recreate the fractionation experiment at home. I think that that's a really cool way if you want to figure out how to dial in like a new bag of beans, maybe try fractioning it, see what you like. I think uh, if you're wanting to improve your tasting, the spiking coffee to and recognizing things in coffee within the actual beverage uh, will be fun way to emulate my panel training. Yeah, thanks for offering that. So what are you working on right now? What can you talk about? And how could our listeners be a part of that? I can't exactly do any sensory studies with COVID going on right now. Right, yeah. <laughs> so my research is kind of on hold. I'm doing a lot of writing. Um, okay. So some yeah. of the stuff I'm writing up. Um, so like I said, we, we're doing a lot of work on the coffee brewing control chart. So that is going to be published fairly soon in an open access journal. So it's currently in review. And so that I brewed all over the coffee brewing control chart and we're trying to map flavors in that space. I think the lecture from SCA back in April is online Mm -hmm. and accessible. I haven't actually looked for it. Then I did an experiment that I'm currently writing up on how specific flavors change with post-brew holding time in coffee. Okay, yeah. um, And how different types of coffee change. So we looked at both like specialty coffee, like a single origin light roast and like more like commodity coffee and typical coffee shop coffee, so some Keith's dark roast, so different types of coffee, as well as different carafes. So like comparing whether it's held with heat or just with a vacuum seal sort of insulation. Okay, Um, yeah. And so I'm writing that up from recent uh, work. Uh, We're focusing a lot now, now that we sort of determined that sugars weren't, weren't the most important focus, uh, we've been focusing a lot more on acids in coffee. So looking at how Fine, yeah. pH and mm-hmm. titratable acidity change across the coffee brewing control chart and uh, looking at acidity of cold brew coffee. Right okay. now, that's just simple measurements, pH and titratable acidity. Those are benchtop measurements, you know, you could, and hopefully we'll get back in the mass spec facility and look at how the extraction patterns of specific acids comparing the small organic acids like acetic acid and citric and malic to the chlorogenic acids and how those contribute to flavor. And eventually there will be a cold brew sensory project, sort of a cold brew <laughs> brewing control chart uh, yeah. kind of thing. Awesome. But yeah. uh, who knows when that's going to happen? <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So uncertain. Um, yeah. So that maybe will happen next year. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, hopefully, right? Yeah. Well, cool. I really want to urge the coffee industry to shake up its sensory methodology a little bit, like looking at more like specific quantification of flavor to, uh, yeah, I guess uh, not just limit it to quality scores. So there's a lot of different ways. I only talked about descriptive analysis and my method of descriptive analysis. There's a lot of different ways to measure the quality and flavor of a cup of coffee. And mm. um, yeah, don't, don't get, don't just pigeonhole it into one method. Uh, listen to Andrews talking about consumer preference. Yeah. That sort of thing. Our next conversation is with Andrew Cotter. He is a master's student at UC Davis with a focus on food science and technology. He works closely with the UC Davis Coffee Center, which implements techniques from chemical engineering and food science. His specialty is sensory and consumer science principles. He starts off by explaining his culinary background. The culinary background was something that I sort of decided to do on a whim. I really had no exposure to the food industry, either from a food service perspective or a food manufacturing perspective before enrolling in culinary school. And when I was in culinary school is where I really discovered that food manufacturing, food processing um, was a thing. And that's what sort of sparked my interest in the field of food science and what made me decide to continue my education, get my bachelor's and eventually my master's on food science. And in terms of sensory science, my interest in that stemmed from me getting a on-campus job when I was doing my bachelor's degree in a sensory lab. A lot of my culinary and sort of food service skills that I learned in culinary school translated well to the sensory lab that I was working in because it was a lot of preparing foods and serving them to people and asking them how much do you like this? How do you feel about the saltiness of this cracker or the sweetness of this this lemonade and things of that nature? Yeah, I like me some lemonade. I probably would have been a good candidate for that uh, <laughs> <laughs> for that research. It's clear that you have a specialty in the sensory side, specific to the consumer perception. In your own words, what is sensory science, and what does it have to do with coffee? And, and why should we care? Why should our listeners care? So sensory science is a discipline within food science and like consumer, consumer research and things of that nature, um, which really focuses on how foods and other consumer goods are perceived by humans using the five basic senses of sight, touch, sound, smell, and taste. Whenever someone interacts with a the product, there are sort of a few basic processes that go on. One such process is the perceived experience from the raw sensory inputs, which would answer questions like, what is this like and how intense is this experience? Um, that's more on the descriptive side of things. Um, and what I focus on specifically as a consumer scientist um, is the hedonic experience where we sort of take all those sensory inputs and we classify how much we actually enjoy the experience that is delivered by whatever food we're tasting or whatever product we're using. In terms of sensory's role in the coffee industry, I would say that sensory evaluation is already very heavily integrated into the coffee community. If you head to any coffee shop or browse the aisle of a grocery store, um, you can see a huge variety of different products to choose from. You've got different bean origins, different roast levels. You have espresso, drip coffee, iced coffee, cold brew with or without cream and sugar, so on and so forth. Each of these options delivers a completely different sensory experience in terms of taste, texture, mouthfeel, um, aroma, appearance, things like that. And a consequence of that is that it allows for people to develop preferences and you get this pattern where different people like and dislike different things. Additionally, the especially coffee industry already has its own sort of style of sensory analysis in the cupping and quality grading protocols. So therefore I would say that sensory analysis in some fashion has been on the minds of coffee professionals and consumers for quite some time. Where would you say the value is specifically in this conversation for, say, a roaster, coffee shop owner? I would say the value in this conversation towards someone who is more direct to consumer in terms of like producing coffees that they either themselves sell directly to a consumer, or maybe they sell it to a coffee shop that eventually sells it to consumers. Ultimately, you need to know what the general likes and dislikes of the end users are in your sort of what we're going to talk about later is your target population. Um, I think it's very important for a coffee producer, um, whether it's a roaster or a brewer or things like that, to know sort of what the key variables are um, in terms of figuring out which of these variables most heavily influence whether or not your product is going to be liked or disliked by um, your consumers. I know this too, and we won't go deep into this. It's something maybe we consider as we continue the conversation, but there's this 
idea in the world of roasting coffee. This is concern for roasters where, you know, they have a not ready to drink beverage that they're selling, a whole bean, what have you. And then you mm-hmm. have the consumer actually brewing that at home. So there's this disconnect of like, oh, shoot, I hope they don't use the, say, wrong quality water or, you know, that that they uh, grind their beans fresh or you get what I'm saying? There's sort of this interesting disconnect. Yeah, there's there's a little extra step of separation in between what mm-hmm. the what the producer sells and what the eventual end user actually consumes. I would say coffee is a very unique beverage in that sense. Coffee and tea to a certain extent, although I think tea does a little bit better than coffee in terms of like ready to drink beverages. There's a lot more ready mm-hmm. to drink tea beverages out there than there are coffee at the moment. So let me jump ship off that micro topic there. I want to ask you about common words you run into during your research where you find the most confusion. I've run into this a lot in the cafe world where understanding the consumer's preference can be really difficult or tricky. You'll hear things like, I like my coffee really strong, which, you know, what does that mean, right? Or this coffee taste under-extracted is something you might hear more sophisticated consumers say. What are examples of some really confusing strings of sentences that you hear in research? I definitely think that there are terms that get thrown around in in the context of coffee that could potentially mean different things to different people. Um, There's plenty of examples of this, including words like strong or bold. Bold is one you see quite a bit when you browse the coffee aisle at a grocery store. One person who likes espresso might use those words like strong or bold to describe sort of high flavor intensity or high impact. Mm -hmm. Um, While another person might hate espresso and use those words to describe a relatively weak drip brewed dark roast coffee. So those are Two examples of words that um, are kind of loaded in the sense that they could mean different things to different people. And depending on the context, they're not very highly specific. Underextracted is a really interesting one um, since it is a taste descriptor that actually refers to some metric used to monitor the brewing process. Hmm. I think the actual sensory experience delivered by underextracted coffee is going to depend heavily on the coffee origin and roast level. And while I think that Many coffee professionals and some specialty coffee consumers may be able to correctly identify under-extracted coffee. The general coffee consumer may be more prone to use other language to describe it, maybe like a sour or a salty or some of these actual tastes and flavors that you get from this specific bean when it is, quote unquote, under-extracted. A while ago, way long time ago in the podcast, probably in the first year, we actually talked about the idea of getting rid of saying things like under and over-extracted. Because my co-host and I, we, we felt that it, was, it wasn't helpful. I think we used to use the terms. And then we got to the point where like, it's not helpful. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's like, it's kind of like a little bit meta, a little bit like, wait, to you, it might taste under-extracted. To me, I'm, it might be perfect. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? There, there is confusion ar- around how do we describe what we're tasting and especially in the realm of selling it to a consumer. And these are things we have to pay a lot more attention to now anybody who's a retailer selling coffee, especially during COVID, you want to get this right. I think this is something that's become increasingly important to people. This is another thing that I would hear a lot in the cafe world. A consumer would say, you know, I I don't like coffee. I like the way it smells, but I don't like how it tastes. Have you run into this in your research? Um, So this is something I personally have not run into in my own research. Um, I have done separate research projects, both on the the aroma of ground coffee and the flavor of drip brewed coffee. Um, But in terms of running into people that's running into people in my own research that say, oh, I like the way the coffee smells, but I don't like the way it tastes. Um, Mm -hmm. Normally with consumer studies, we really want to focus on recruiting people that are regular users of the product that's actually being studied. In my most recent study I ran, I was analyzing drip brewed coffee with no additives or black coffee. Um, So I really focused when I was recruiting people for that study, I was focusing on recruiting people that said that they regularly, um, at least a few times a week, drank their coffee with nothing, nothing in it. Yeah, that makes sense. You wouldn't really want to be doing that research on people who don't, don't drink coffee. I guess no, I guess that makes a lot of sense. Can you walk us through how you might conduct a consumer-facing sensory experiment? Maybe go through something you've already published. Um, so I have it broken down into six different steps here. The first step is going to be, as you would with any scientific experiment, you want to come up with your hypothesis. You want to clearly define some sort of question 
that you are looking to answer. Um, in the context of my most recent project I did, it was, does the coffee brewing control chart, the total dissolved solids and the extraction percentage have any sort of impact on the consumer acceptability of these drip brewed black coffees? Step number two is going to be to select your sample set. And what you really want to focus on when you are picking out the coffees that you want to evaluate is that you want to pick a set of products that will answer your question without introducing any confounding variables. So for example, let's say your hypothesis is that more people generally prefer light roast over dark roast coffee. You might randomly select three single origin coffees and roast each of them to light and dark um, for a total of six samples that you need to taste. What you would not want to do is to just go to the grocery store and pick out any three random light roast and any three random dark roasts because that could introduce what are known as confounding variables, which are variables that you didn't really correctly control for. So if you were to just go to um, the grocery store and pick out these six um, different coffees at random, um, yes, they might vary in their roast level, but they also might vary in their freshness, their bean origin, or whether or not the coffee was blended or single origin. And any effect that you find due to what you think is roast level could actually be due to any of those um, other variables hmm, yeah. that I just listed. Um, so third step, this is kind of unique to... Um, consumer sensory analysis is to define your target population. So you are going to be serving these coffees to a sample of consumers who are a representative of your target population. In general, the target population should always be users of the product being evaluated. For example, with my most recent study, we were looking at drip brew coffee. So we wanted, we focused on recruiting people that were regular consumers of drip brew coffee with no additives in it. From there, depending on how good you are recruiting or how able you are to um, recruit a wide variety of panelists, you could further refine it to be for example, people who only drink their coffee black or consider themselves consumers of specialty coffee. That's really just going to depend on what types of consumers you have access to with your um, recruiting survey and things like that. Fourth step is going to be to design your tasting ballot. So consumer testing typically involves consumers interacting with the product in the context of coffee that's going to be actually tasting the coffee. And then they're going to answer questions about their experience either on paper or on some sort of online survey. In consumer research, one of the main questions that we ask is how much they like the product using what's known as the nine-point hedonic scale, which is a scale that goes from dislike extremely to like extremely with a um, neither like nor dislike option right in the middle. The fifth step is going to be to screen, recruit, and invite your participants and have them taste the coffees and collect your data. And then the sixth step is going to be your statistics, reporting your observations, writing up your results and communicating them to the general public or whoever's interested. This is a pretty thorough process, a lot different than going around in a room and tasting a coffee. You know, I'm talking about cupping, but honestly, I don't think cupping is, it's not even the same kind of experience at all because cupping is more for choosing a coffee than it is for the consumer. Though, so this process is thorough, and, and you've done some research. Um, you've you published some some research on the sensory side, uh, the consumer side of things in coffee. W what is some of the research that you've worked on in detail? The most recent project that I did was really focused on coffee brewing and sort of updating and expanding upon what's known as the coffee brew control chart, which is a tool that was developed by Ernest Earl Lockhart back in the 1950s, um, where he relates these two sort of physical chemical parameters of total dissolved solids and extraction percentage to the flavor and ultimately the acceptability of the coffee brew itself. In the consumer portion of the study, we had 118 consumers come in and taste coffees that varied in terms of their total dissolved solid content, their extraction percentage, and their brewing temperature. What we found was that there was so much disagreement in our panelist patterns of liking and disliking, especially with regards to TDS and percent extraction, that we really didn't feel comfortable in saying that there was one ideal extraction profile that could be applied to all the consumers in the study for the coffee that we used. That's a bit of a shift than what I'm used to, you know, talking about and even seeing in the industry, the idea that there's this ideal place to brew for a consumer. In your opinion, does this require some kind of paradigm shift or what would you say this means? I think it's a perhaps on sort of the requirement for a paradigm shift. I think require is a, quite a strong word to use when describing the after effects of one study. Um, I always 
urge people to proceed with caution when it comes to making big decisions as a result of a single study. Considering a robust body of work is always more a more favorable way to go about things. However, I will say that our study did find that consumers noticed changes in the coffee's flavor and acceptability as a result of the two brewing parameters outlined by Lockhart, the total dissolved solids and the percent extraction, and that the most balanced coffee or the most the most balanced flavor was not necessarily always the most liked by every consumer. Would you be able to say the majority of consumers preferred a certain category or a certain kind of flavor, or was it pretty spread out? Yes. So we we used a statistical method known as um, clustering analysis. We had a, a lot of variation in our data set. So we used something called clustering analysis to sort of help group the consumers according to similar patterns of liking and disliking for all the coffees that were in the set. And what we found is that there was one group of consumers that tended to prefer coffees that were very low in TDS um, and also relatively low, low to medium in terms of their percent extraction. So it was like a one, their sort of quote unquote ideal extraction profile was around 1.0 TDS and anywhere from like 18 to 22%. Yeah, anywhere from like 18 to 22% extraction. And then our other cluster of consumers really tended to prefer some of the higher TDS coffees somewhere north of like 1.35. And they actually displayed something really interesting where within that higher range of TDS, they actually liked the low extraction and the high extraction more than what would be considered, traditionally be considered to be the ideal extraction percentage in that sort of 20 to 22% range. How do you decide, this is just my data curiosity, how did y'all decide two clusters say versus three, four, five, was it a very clear distinction? So that's actually that's actually an area that's not super well-defined in terms of choosing the number of clusters. Normally in consumer research, you want to, if you decide the clustering is necessary for the data set that you are investigating, you just typically want to stick somewhere between two and five. The exact number is going to depend on how homogenous the clusters are mm-hmm. at every different okay. sort of level of where you, where you draw the line at. There are some metrics that you can look at, but at the end of the day, that's one of the what's that's one of the areas that's sort of a sort of a bit of a judgment um you just got to okay. kind of look at the output and say okay yeah. i think this is probably i think two clusters probably tells the story the best i want to dive into consumer preferences a little deeper here there it tends to be or there appears to be rather the tension in the global coffee culture between material objectivity and then the labeled subjectiveness of consumer preferences how do you deal with reconciling these two while doing this research? So I would I would start out by saying that subjectiveness is actually the entire point of uh, what we're doing. That's what we're looking to measure. If you look at the literal definition of subjectivity, um, it refers to something that is influenced by individual feelings. So consumer sensory work, especially when it comes to measuring something like liking or preference, um, wholly embraces the uh, subjectivity that arises when you ask a large group of people how they feel about something. What we're interested in summarizing is is this subjectivity and figuring out what factors influence it, whether they be features of the product itself, like the taste or flavor of the coffee, or features of mm-hmm. the people that are being asked how they feel about the coffees. This could be something like their demographics, um, their personal values, their past experiences, or things of that nature. Or it could be some mixture of those two factors. You mentioned earlier something about a target. And it, this conversation, like everything you just said to me, only seems to make sense if you're going in with a target in mind, because how you, to measure the most ideal outcome, I would assume you would need to know who your target audience is or something like that. I, mm-hmm. Am I on the right track? I'm kind of scratching my way at this thing. <laughs> um, I, I, think, I think whenever you bring up the word ideal, I think for whom always has to sort of follow along mm-hmm. with that because ideal is a hedonic term. It is a term that refers to some sort of preference or some sort of um, good versus bad. And I think that usually lies in the hands of whoever is evaluating it. And Mm -hmm. especially in coffee, normally the person who is evaluating coffee is the person who's drinking it. So I think ideal is a very subjective term when it comes to coffee flavor. If we're measuring for a group and we come out of the, the decision that the majority prefer or find this ideal, is that the decision that's encouraged to make? Or what is the... Because I'm seeing it start to lean in my mind towards uh, majority rules kind of thing. Do you get what I'm saying? 
Yes. So uh, I think what you're asking is, is the most liked product the one that is always going to be chosen type, type of deal? If, let's say like you are a company trying to decide between two products. Um, you submit these two products to a consumer test and whatever the consumer test says is what you go with, right? Um, so I would say that it's definitely a very important consideration, but it is not the only consideration. Um, obviously, you have to look at how much is this going to cost me to produce um, as a business? Um, mm -hmm. what's, the what's the feasibility of being able to produce this on a large scale um, or whatever scale I need to be able to produce it on? But then additionally, the uh, consistency comes in, comes into play. How feasible is it to reach this specific flavor profile on a regular basis to the point where when people come back expecting to have the same experience they had the first time, am I going to be able to deliver um, that same experience or is it very, is there, a, is there a lot of variability um, in the process that leads to some flavor changes that are tough to control? So consistency does play a major role here. In what other ways, say a roaster is curious about sensory science and they're wondering how science can really help them from a consistency perspective? What does that look like on paper? Like, So I would say that Science, when it comes to helping to deliver product consistency, really comes down to understanding the core or the key variables that are manipulated in order to either be able to deliver a consistent product or these key variables that lead to some sort of shift in the in the profile of the product or some variation in the flavor. So let's say we have this roaster who really who found this coffee and this roast profile um, that really is completely awesome. Everybody in their, everybody that comes into their coffee shop loves it. The roaster themselves loves it. But they have issues where some some days they're able to hit that. Some some days when they go to the roaster, they're able to hit hit that roast profile and get those key flavors that they're looking for. And other days they're not. What science, what a scientific experiment could help with would be to help identify what the key variables are that might be leading to these sort of shifts and the inability to recreate your, your results on a regular basis. I'm going to dive back in my memory a little bit. When we first started the podcast, we would talk about, you know, how to brew better coffee at home and, you know, how to get the best extraction, this kind of stuff. And we weren't using all kinds of tools. We were going off of experience. And in this sense, we were tinkering, right? The idea of being a coffee tinker, which is actually, I, I've stolen that from you. So I would consider myself a coffee tinker. And I would say that there are probably, no, there are certainly tinkers out there who are a lot more serious and intense about it than I am. How would mm -hmm. you describe a coffee tinkerer in the context of coffee science? So I would say that a coffee tinkerer is, um, is a form of a coffee scientist. Um, maybe not maybe not to the extent that they are conducting very highly controlled experiments and trying to discover the underlying factors behind what's causing what. Um, but maybe a coffee, a coffee tinker is someone who isn't afraid to take a bit of a risk and break with traditional norms um, in an effort to discover something, be it a bean origin, a roast profile, or a brewing method that delivers some sort of novel experience that people may like or they may dislike. And I would say that a big part of that in terms of being a tinker versus being someone that just kind of does whatever and accepts the results of whatever they do is that the tinker is very deliberate in what variables they choose to um, they choose to mess around with and they they take some sort of recording as to what they did and what the results were whether whether it be a mental recording or a, phys or a physical recording writing it down in a notebook or something like that they uh, they keep track of it what role do you believe coffee tinkers like many of our listeners me, myself, and I, in coffee sensory science, like from a from big picture perspective? So I think that they provide the creativity that leads to new and unexpected observations that can be further explored by scientists in order to describe maybe what the underlying mechanisms behind how they discovered what they did, what in particular about their process leads to the result that they um, observed. I know in the world of, you know, social media, the Instagram world of what is coffee science or what isn't coffee science? Or You can probably get into a pretty heated debate with people on this one. And I like that you've tied in the tinkerer with the big picture. I love that. Maybe I'm biased, though, too, because I want to be included. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I want my thoughts to be included. Um, so in closing, this is, this is an important question because we've talked about coffee tinkers. We've, we've talked about coffee sensory science. And hopefully at this point, we're gaining a better understanding of the consumer perception side of things. What kinds of experiments do you recommend for us at home? What are the kinds of things we can do? Low budget, got coffee in our kitchen. What are some things we can do 
um, to be a tinkerer in the home setting in a way, or maybe even, you know, some baristas are, are out there working. What, what can we do to be sort of our, our own little tinker sensory sciences in those environments? As, as we mentioned earlier, coffee is a very unique beverage in that it is usually prepared by the end user or it could be prepared by someone to be given to the end user. So I think a lot of the tinkering that can be done by your normal coffee consumer could be in sort of the realm of brewing. And there's a there's a lot of variables you can play around with with brewing. If you um, if you happen to have a grinder at home and you, you buy whole beans, you could play around with, with different grind sizes. You could play around with different brewing methods, water temperatures, water mineral contents. If you get if you like to get that extreme at home, I do know some people that like to um, blend their own um, mineral mineral mixtures. Um, you bet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> play around with different filters, but. I, th- I think really what, what separates the tinkerers is that they are deliberate. They try to take sort of detailed observations as to what the end result is in terms of, say, it be the, the flavor or the mouthfeel. And maybe they can, they can share those results on uh, social media. They could say, hey, I was, uh, I was messing around with some different brewing methods at home using this bean. I got this really cool flavor that I liked, and I want to see if anyone else can uh, recreate this result. When our listeners walk away from this conversation... What do you want our listeners to have learned? What I want your listeners to have learned coming away from this conversation is that um, they should not be afraid to state what they like and what they dislike. Um, and don't be afraid to brew coffee the, the way you like it. Um, really, what our research showed is that there is no wrong answer when it comes to the ideal extraction profile. It is really highly individualized. There's no wrong answer when it comes to what you like and what you dislike. It is completely up to you. Don't feel like you have a bad palate if you happen to like coffee that is really, really strong and really under-extracted. We covered a lot of ground in this episode. We learned about the role of descriptive sensory analysis and of consumer preference and how science plays a role in understanding both. Next week, we hear about what is happening and what is next for the UC Davis Coffee Center with its director, William Ristenpart. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, and until next time, happy brewing.